coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Aristotle once said, every rascal is not a thief, but every thief is a rascal. And our guest today was once America's most notorious jewel thief who robbed $15 million in jewels all across the United States. But that pales in comparison to what happened next. He went on to become a police officer and was also the first ex-con recognized on the floor of the United States Congress. Maybe Congress recognized him as one of their own. It does take one to know one, (laughs) despite his past and in spite of it. He's become a role model to some and an inspiration to many. And only in America can these bizarre, weird and wonderful real-life stories be found. My guest sounds like a gangster and looks like the love child between Hulk Hogan and Kojak. And I can make that statement with real courage because he's on the phone and not within arm's reach. And while he escaped the long arms of the law in his former life, he could not escape the strong reach of the Vip Jaswell report. So after a long pursuit and making him an offer he could not refuse, I finally bring to you the one and only jewel thief turned cop, turned author and so much more, Mr. Larry Lawton. Welcome to the show, Larry. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Vip. I'm very glad to be here. Did you like that intro? Uh, really nice intro, uh, uh, except I'm not a jewel thief. I was a jewel robber. There is a dif- difference. Oh, really? What's the difference? Well, a jewel thief is somebody who might go in at night or who might go in to, when there's nobody there and steal something, where a jewel robber actually mm. goes and takes it from somebody. Well, this is not a court of law. You don't have to go into that. Everyone knows what it is. Sheesh. And I'm only being so gutsy, like I said, because you're on the phone. Well, yeah, I can't get to you, you know. uh, (laughs) I've seen those tattoos and those biceps. Sheesh. Well, I'm known to have pretty big, big guns, as they say, you know, but uh, that's from working out a lot and doing doing what I do. So, you know, Larry is a common name, but do you know what it means? Uh, No, I don't. It means you're idealistic. Highly imaginative, intuitive, and even spiritual. Um, it also says that if you failed to develop your potential, you might become a dreamer or misuse your power. Is that you? Wow. That is exactly me. That is exactly me. And I don't know if you just uh, if that's true, but if it isn't, then I hope it is true. But it, it's, that is really me. Hmm. And Aristotle once said, every rascal is not a thief, but every thief is a rascal. So you're a rascal? You know, I, I heard you on the intro, and I really kind of laughed at that. Uh, you know, I think I use the word rascal as somebody to have, like, a little fun and stuff like that. And I mm. am really a, a fun kind of guy or a tease guy. A very You have a naughty streak. Uh, everybody has a naughty streak. Uh, you have I a think naughty everybody, streak. Oh, everybody does. So that means you do. Okay. Absolutely. So tell me, how many jewelry stores have you robbed? Well, uh, the estimate—it's it's about right—is approximately twenty, maybe a little over twenty jewelry stores. And when I say jewelry stores, I'm not talking about a little one. I'm talking about wholesalers and pretty big stores, hmm. and approximately fifteen to eighteen million dollars worth of, of jewels uh, is what the FBI uh, has me pegged for. I was actually convicted on doing four stores. 
uh, and uh, uh, four, six stores in four different states. And it was what they call Rule 20, and they brought them to one case, and they had me over $3 million in just those stores. You know, I hate to be technical, but just like you were about a thief and a robber, when they tagged you down for that amount, was it wholesale value or retail value? <laughs> well, you know, the actual probably be retail, uh, wholesale, wholesale my end. Uh, retail value is, you know, a whole different thing of what I got for the diamonds is a whole different thing. That's a different wholesale, VIP, and we'll get into the jeweler's market there in a little bit if you'd like. I will. And um, you targeted stores. Wouldn't it have been easier to rob rich people's homes because of the less security involved? Actually not. Hmm. Uh, as you well know, uh First of all, there's, you don't know where the diamonds or the jewels or the gems are, per mm -hmm. se, where in a jewelry store you do know by casing it. You can't just go into a person's house. And as they you know, proved in the Cannes France robbery approximately a year ago, $134 million was robbed in one bag. One little bag, one guy walked out with. You can't do that in any home invasion robbery you get unless it's just, you know, it's a setup and you know where the jewels are in that house. So how did you rob jewelry stores? What was the procedure you adopted? Well, you know, it, it was... A, the procedure was I actually did takeovers, they're called, where I would end up going into the store and taking whoever's in the store down, tying them up. I never gagged someone. I didn't want anybody to choke or anything like that. No, I didn't hurt anybody in a robbery. But I would tie them up and I would clean out the store. You know, Vip, what we found out is I don't think the owners were as mad. Of course, I caused a lot of harm. And I want all your listeners to know I don't take what I did, and I'm not proud of that, and it's not the right thing to do. And although I physically didn't hurt anybody, obviously I hurt people mentally and uh, psychologically. But I think the people who were the most pissed at me were the insurance companies, because they're the ones who really got hit uh, with this whole thing. Now, in New York City, there was a recent robbery in the Diamond District, um, which is actually just a block away from me. The funny thing is, that street has about 22,000 employees. There are about 1,500 companies. And the annual trade, I'm led to believe, is $24 billion, with a B, billion dollars. Uh, it, it seems to be more guarded than Wall Street. Cameras everywhere, security guards. How does a robbery like that happen? Well, that's a great question, Vip. And I do understand those numbers. And actually... Those numbers w wouldn't hurt me or the security would help me. Let me explain. Mm. Security is really made for the smash and grab guy, maybe five guys coming in armed uh, to the teeth. Mm. This was a planned, calculated robbery by somebody on the inside. They knew where cameras were, what disguise, and which cameras never bothered me when you wear a description. And let me give you a little hint on that. On one robbery... Uh, they had people give descriptions of me, and you had one person say I was 160 pounds with red hair. <laughs> so uh, your, your descriptions are going to be way off when people are traumatized and they give a description. Now, as for cameras, you can really alter yourself today to not look like what it is on that camera. And whether it's padding under your shirt, uh, different facial stuff, glasses, hats, clothing, all of that matters, Vip, and on an inside job, 
all of that. When I say inside job, it doesn't mean it's somebody in on that jewelry store. And there were watches that were robbed, approximately $2 million in, in high-end watches. So what I was getting at is when I say inside job, it's somebody who system on that whole entire uh, street, which is the diamond exchange. So do you think there were more than two people? Because the photos they showed in the press were just two two guys, uh, ordinary-looking guys. Well, I think more than two people knew. Now, when I say by that knew, uh, it could have been one one or two people setting it up. Could have been They have to have a fence for that kind of stuff. You don't just take $2 million in watches and think, oh, I'm going to go you know, keep them in my drawer. There's a reason they were robbed. And there was that, that store, there was a reason they were robbed. They knew it was in there, and they had a fence already. Now, when I say had a fence, that fence might not have known when they were going to do it or what store they were going to do, but that fence VIP knew exactly that they were going to get X amount of dollars and knew they would give them the money for that. So I can get into that end of the deal because it's always going to be a – multiple part and in my own robberies vip none of my crew ever knew where i got rid of my diamonds and that was uh, done on purpose of course oh so you're saying that every you kept all the information away from everyone else yes as far as the uh, f- actual fence goes yes nobody knew who the fences were except myself and oh. that goes for the people very close to me so how long would it would you take before you actually robbed a store? How long would you spend in, in, in scouting the movements and getting a timetable of who's doing what and where and when? Well, let, let me give it better, a little bit better. Let me give your listeners a little rundown on how a jewelry store, store is cased. Mm. Uh, the first part would be to find out the area you're going to go in, whether there's the jewelry district. They had a setup. I mean, I've been involved in a setup, so I understand what they're about. But you have to first, it could be weeks, it could be a month. Right. You end up knowing who is coming in, who is going, when the mailman comes, when the postman comes, when the a special delivery would come, who's going, when they're going, what vehicles they use to go, so you can check to see what time they are. If When they come in, do they first set up the jewels into cases, or do they open the safe and then, you know, take out the trash. There's multiple ends to casing a jewelry store, and a couple of them could be not only do you case it from the outside, you case it from the inside. I would, there's no doubt in my mind that the people who robbed this jewelry store were either at some time inside that store, whether it was by delivery, whether it was by camera on somebody else, Mm-hmm. to understand the layout and everything in that store and to walk up into it. This store wasn't a storefront on uh, the bottom floor of 47th Street. This was upstairs uh, store, so they had to know to go up to that store and know where to go. And you wouldn't do that without going in the store first. But I also heard that they didn't come out the same way they went in. There, there, there are corridors across the building. Sure, absolutely. And uh, they knew that. I mean, you don't just, you know, the first one of the first things you do in a robbery is mm. you, you plan your getaway. That's one of the first things you do. You actually reverse the robbery from a going in the store to actually how can I get out? What's my getaway? I had planned getaways before I even went in the store for the first time. 
So, and then that's just even the route of the car leaving. So every part of my robbery was very calculated. And, it, you know, that's why I say this was professionals. This was not a crackhead who just thought, oh, let's get some watches and sell them. Mm-hmm. That's not what this robbery was about. This was a calculated robbery, and I am sure the authorities are looking at everything. As you well know, I, I help insurance companies now, VIP, uh, investigate these kind of robberies and try to help them figure out who and why and was it inside, was it not, and try to help law enforcement as well. Do they get you to get in touch with your connections in your previous life? You know, never, because there is no more connections in my previous life life involved in this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what's good about it. People ask me, well, you know, if you really want redemption, shouldn't everybody know about everybody? Well, I look at it this way. There is no more robberies happening. There's nobody involved in what I was involved with in any kind of criminal activity ever again. Uh, and I don't think there will be. I mean, when they got the head, they got the snake, they cut the head off, and that was me. So, And I took the, the fall for that. As you well know, Vip, I did four 12-year sentences in the hardest prisons in the world. And it wasn't easy, but I did it, and I accepted responsibility for my actions and did the time. Now, what was your most exciting jewelry robbery? Well, you know, there's a couple of them uh, that come to mind, and the reactions of the people in them, really make me kind of think back to some of them. I mean, you'll have people who react different ways in robberies. One robbery kind of stands out because I was in the ro- in the store mm-hmm. doing a robbery, and people would come in. And as they come in, I come up to them and tell them, hey, listen, this is a robbery. And they get a little bit spooked, but I calm them down. I bring them in the back. At one time, I had about seven people uh, tied up in the back. I was running out of the flex cuffs that I used to put their hands in. And one of the guys there, who was a customer that apparently the owners or the clerks of the jewelry store did not like, because he kept talking. And I wondered, is this man a cop? What is he What is he yakking his gums so much for? I went up to him, I took his wallet out, and I never took personal stuff off people during a robbery VIP. I just didn't do that. And I looked at the guy, he wasn't a cop, and then I looked at his, uh, his jewelry, and I ended up taking a bracelet off him just to look at it, and sure enough, it's a fake break bracelet. So he was coming in and giving these ladies a hard time in a jewelry store, and I talked the bracelet off, and I threw it at him. I said, you're a fagazi. This is a, this is a fake. And the clerks in the store started laughing. They just started laughing. And uh, it kind of made me, me smile because it's very, very vivid in my mind of what happened, and uh, it, it's kind of funny. Now, how would you enjoy the money? Oh, you know, I lived large, Vip. I had multiple homes, my own limousine, horses, take trips all over. Ended up losing a quarter million dollars in cash in Las Vegas. Uh, did every drug in the book, uh, so there wasn't a drug I didn't do. And then uh, lost muku buku bucks in casinos. But did you have a front to show how you got your money legally? Well, I ended up having nightclubs. I owned nightclubs. I owned a vending company. I owned a limousine company. I had uh, uh, businesses that I would invest in and like that. And, you know, it was really funny, Vip, because people never knew that I was a jewel robber. They did know I did something. You know, here's a guy who can come and go as he please. But I assumed most people thought I was a drug dealer, and I wasn't. 
and I wasn't. Here I was in Florida at the time. So uh, drugs back in the early 90s and late 80s were very prevalent, but I was not a drug dealer. So I didn't mind the perception of people thinking I was a drug dealer because if they were looking at me for that, they would never find any kind of stuff of that nature. I did drugs, but I never was a drug dealer. And thank God, because I think drugs uh, uh, is just something that would have followed me for years and years to come. How how did you then offload your catch for the day? Where Who's, who's buying all the diamonds that you're stealing? Well, the diamonds used to go. I used to bring my diamonds within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I used to get rid of my diamonds in the real diamond exchange, I call it, is down in Little Italy right. in Chinatown down there. I would have get rid of all of my whole stack. Would they know hours. that you're coming with a bunch no. of diamonds? No, they did not know when, but I would call when I'm outside New York. Whether I, was, I usually drove, so I'd be in New Jersey and say, I'm on my way, and they'd say, okay. They knew right then and there something happened, and I would meet them down below underneath Uh, the jewelry exchange there, there's a lot of sellers and stuff that they make gold, they do stuff, and I would go down there, and we'd literally offload the whole entire load, and anything involved in that uh, that robbery would be put into an incinerator. I'm talking tags off all the rings and uh, clothes that I wanted to get rid of. It would be incinerated. And so within 24 hours, nobody could tell pretty much where those diamonds or any of my stuff went. And from there, I was told later down years that my jewelry was re- remounted, re-put into stuff, re- re- you know, reinvented, uh, if you want to call it that. And it went all over the country, to California, to uh, Las Vegas, to jewelry stores. And they would end up selling it to other people at a lower price, and they would wholesale it. And that's how, it, how the actual jewelry business works. It's kind of funny, Vip, because I always said, you know, I should have just opened up a jewelry store on Rodeo Drive in California, and I could have been the supplier of my own jewelry store and probably (laughs) ten times my money. Now, in order for you not to be robbed, you needed to know a lot about the diamonds themselves, right? Well, you know, there's two aspects to that question, Vip, and I'm going to answer them both. Mm. Uh... Do I get robbed by another gangster? I had to be associated with organized crime. Right. So they knew that I was protected. Because if not, I would have been kidnapped and taken by a, a, a rival family. And they would have they would have got the money out of me. Obviously, you can do that. And then I'm done. I had no protection. But being I was associated with organized crime, I could then kick up to my bosses and have the protection. Even if it's perceived protection, protection on that way. Now, as far that's for getting robbed for myself. Now, getting robbed by the jeweler, that's a whole nother business. And I ended up going to the GIA under the table. I paid ten grand to go to the GIA, which is the Gemological Institute of America, a guy who ran that at the time. I gave him $10,000, and actually there were a couple other people with me, and we actually took the class under the table. Now, I didn't know what they did. They didn't know what I did, the other people. And they, we went through the whole program. It took about, oh, 
10 days approximately to go through the program, and we actually did exactly what they do at the GI Institute, understand how the, the diamonds are bought and where they come from. It's, it's, it's a real education lesson, how they're graded and watched. I actually watched the guy cut a diamond, and that's, that's an amazing, amazing feat to watch. And uh, so we, we got that, and I did that, Vip, because while I'm doing robberies, I'm saying, I don't know enough about diamonds to not get robbed from the people who I am getting rid of the diamonds from. Right. And uh, I wanted to know what they're really worth. And I went through the, the process of doing that. And then in the process of doing that, Vip, I ended up finding out that, oh, a good percentage of the jewelers I dealt with weren't on the up and up themselves. And well, that's what I wanted to ask you, you know. I mean, who's the ultimate thief in all of this? Uh, the robber or the jewelry store? Because, like, you well, know, ladies love diamonds. Guys are, are, are buying diamonds for engagement or a gift or whatever. Um, you never know what you're buying. Oh, that's my it, gut it, instinct. It, you know, and it, it's a good instinct. And, I, I mean, I obviously was an outwardly robber. But do they? Do I think some jewelers are really robbing under the table on, on customers? Absolutely. And I will say that emphatically right here on your show, that I think some of them rob people out there, and it, and it can be a dirty trade. And let me give you tell you why. There's three purchases you'll make, Vip, in your life that are, are very large. And every one of them, you do your research. If you buy a house, you're going to really understand and, and visit multiple homes and know the market, know the neighborhood. If you buy a car, you're going to do some research. And from how much miles it gets to who else rode one, you're going to take it for test spins. You're going to do everything else. And a diamond is the third largest purchase a person will ever make. And sadly... Not, not enough people go to different people and get totally different opinions. They hear about a jeweler, whether it's on a commercial or a friend, and say, you got to go here, you got to go here. The guy goes there, and, and, you know, eventually, you know, you hear many, many stories about people getting ripped off at jewelers. Mm. Now, are there good and bad in every profession? Absolutely. So I don't want to say every profession. But I have been witness to, as a man who went to the GIA Institute, I was doing one robbery. And obviously, I know what I'm talking about and what I'm doing. Well, I don't show that to the owner of the jewelry store. So I'm watching him show me pieces and the prices on the pieces and mm. not telling me the information I needed as a consumer that I would make an obvious good choice. And I'm thinking all the time, look at this guy. He's really trying to rip me off. And now I'm looking around saying, I'm going to rob this guy. It almost became a point of interest for me to rob this one guy. And uh, what he did was there's certain things your, your listeners should know about jewelry stores. Do never buy a, a diamond if you don't see a 10-powered microscope on the countertop. A 10-powered microscope on the countertop. Mm -hmm. Also, the most important thing of a diamond, Vip, is the cut. And I don't mean what kind of diamond, like a pear-shaped or a square uh, you know, something like that, or an oval. I'm not talking about a round and all that. I'm talking about the geometric cut of a diamond. That's what brings the light back from a diamond. And, you know, they'll show you a diamond under a light, and, of course, it glistens. You should take that diamond, put it under the table. And if it could take what little light it gets and bring it back at you, it's of a better cut. That's a quicker way to look. But my my point is they don't show you and they don't give you the actual cut. The cut is one of the most, it is the most important part of a diamond. 
Now, if a jeweler was to pay $100 for a diamond, how much do you think he'd sell it for? <laughs> well, l- l- let me put it this way, depending, of course. But when you hear about a jeweler, say, 75% off, mm-hmm. I don't get it. I just don't get that VIP. And let me explain why. A diamond is not like another product. It's not supposed to depreciate when you walk out the door. They're supposed to increase in value as time goes by. Well, how can you sell somebody 75% off unless it was marked up over 75% what you would get? So at one time or the other, they were ripping somebody off. When I hear these crazy sales, uh, 50% off and stuff, this is not clothing that goes out of styles or a car that gets, you know, after it gets older, so it's going to lose value. I don't get that. When I see that, that's the biggest alarm sign I ever see. You know, 50% off our diamonds. Well, if you can mark it up over 50%, you're still making a profit. How much? That $100 diamond for that guy could be $1,000 to you, Vip. Now, I'm not going to knock jewelers for making a profit, and they should be. And how they buy means a lot, too. The bigger places who buy in more lump sum from De Beers over in Africa right. uh, is a whole different ball game than the little guy getting it from another guy to getting it from another guy, uh, and then all of a sudden telling you they're going to give you fifty percent off. That's just so unrealistic. That it, but it, is it the markup is the markup a thousand percent? You know what? Uh, it could be. Yes, depending on who and what and where it comes from. And who bought it? Yes, it could be. So like a lot of these brands out on Madison Avenue and in Bell Harbor in Miami and things like that, um, is it better off buying from them because you're buying from a name? Or is it just a marketing? You're paying for the marketing costs? Well, absolutely not. You know, I tell people the real person who can give you the best diamond. Mm. Now, I hate to work. I won't even work on the on the illegal side, but the real guys who used to buy my diamonds could sell you a diamond a lot cheaper than anybody else could because they're not getting them at whatever rate they're getting them at. I mean, you can't get a better rate than a guy who stole them. So I'm not going to you know promote that end of it. But what you really have to find out with diamonds is, you know, there's a cost. When I see these beautiful stores and these big rents and everything else, mm. how do you think they're paying for that? I mean, they're paying from that by markups. They're selling large quantities of diamonds for very high prices, and there's a good markup. You couldn't afford a, a Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue unless you had a lot of sales. We mm. all know that. And now, do I think there's good, good jewelers that are in Little Italy or even maybe the Diamond Exchange that are in, you know, you go into a store in the Diamond Exchange and there might be 10 jewelers in that one store. You might find a guy who's an estate buyer. I always looked for that. Estate buyers, to me, are the most, the best way to buy a diamond. Because if they're buying estates, they're buying from you know, somebody who passed away and a person might not uh, understand value of diamonds or give them the fair value from that point of view and then take diamonds out VIP and remount them or put new settings in them mm. and stuff of that nature. So that's the best suggestion for your viewers, uh, for your listeners, is to do it that way. Now, from the diamond life to jail life, you spent how many years? I went to prison in 1996. So in total, how many years? A total of 11 straight years. Now, we live in a thug culture where going to jail is seen as some sort of medal of honor. Um, 
But it's really, I mean, having read your book, uh, Gangster Redemption, it's nothing like that. Absolutely nothing. And that's how I, I ended up opening the reality check program to open the eyes of young people. But prison, and it, it, it makes me cringe when I watch these lockup shows that are, are not true on TV. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm actually working on a project with a, a New York producer and company to do a show called The Real Prisons or The Real Lockup where there, we show the abuses, we show what well, really what was, goes on in prison. What was your worst experience in jail with the inmates? Well, with the inmates, I mean, I, I've been stabbed twice, and I stabbed two people. Mm-hmm. I mean, multiple altercations with people, uh, protecting myself, protecting my uh, manhood, if you want to call it that. Your virginity, uh, let's up. call it that. Yeah, my virginity, and doing anything I had to. And, I, and you know, uh, this is a great question because I hear this from people. Oh, you know, this guy's gay. He should like it in prison. That's so not true. I wouldn't care what a person is, Vip. The prison is the worst place in the world to be. And that's with not only inmates. That is with guards. And as a man who read my book, Mm. I was strapped down naked and pissed on by guards after being beaten and put in a hole for 11 straight months for fighting the abuses going on in prison by guards. Now, it's in the opening of my book, uh, Gangster Redemption, and it, 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 I cringe sometimes when we're talking about the movie now, and it, you know, I think back at that, and I could imagine of my blood pressure, you know, what my real blood pressure was, because I was strapped down naked, literally four-pointed, and a guard took out his, his uh, penis and actually peed on my face and kept telling me, keep writing, Senators Lawton, keep writing, you know, you're going to die in this place, and you know, I really thought I was. And that was after a beating. For 11 straight months, once a month, I was beaten, beaten, very severely beaten. But do you think uh, in any way, shape, or form that you were maybe uh, being an obstruction to keeping the peace? No, I wasn't. Uh, I was not an obstruction of keeping the, uh, the peace. I was an obstruction of, of exposing the abuses going on in prison. And you were writing to the senators? I was writing, the prison system killed three of my friends. And, and you can, they can look this up, Abu Ghraib, there's an article out there, I wrote that article. Uh, they abuse people, and I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I just wonder sometimes how these people went home at night. But there were guards, and let me explain this to the, to the audience as well. I, people ask me, Larry, how can you be an honorary cop? How can you work with prisons and jail? I, I understand people are people. And there are good people in there as well who mm. saved my life. But there are some in there that totally abused me. And you hear about it all the time. I'm in Florida right now, and 85 deaths are being investigated in the prison system. And 32 guards were just fired. And one was, I think, it was up for murder. So, I mean, it's out there, and I think it's a part of society. Not anybody is, you know, not many people are talking about it, but it needs to be addressed because uh, it, it goes to the bigger picture of redemption and second chances in America. And do we really want to help people, or do we just want to see them put down? Which senators were you writing to? Oh, I wrote, and here's a litany, you know, is, it's, people ask me, was it a Democrat, Republican? I had support from certain ones, and I had no support. And then I have a story here. Uh, Hillary, Senator Hillary Clinton did me very well. Also Senator Lindsey Graham. So that's two parts of the aisle. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is the congresswoman in Florida, helped me a lot. 
Uh, and here's a funny story, because there was a congressman at the time named Bill McCollum in Florida. Mm-hmm. All my family read, wrote him. I wrote him. He never answered anybody's mail. You know, it was really funny, Vip, because when he ran for attorney general of the state of Florida, I was one of his biggest thorns in his side with my uh, newsletter and everybody else. And uh, he he lost. And it was kind of, I, you know, payback kind of deal. Because here's a man who did not care. And I'm not even talking about me. Mm. I can get into the numbers why it's important for politicians to support inmates. Because this is a very good number. Every inmate equates to four votes. That's a study they did. Meaning Larry Lawton equated to maybe 20 votes with my extended family, my, my wife at the time, my kids, everybody. Now you take another person who has no, no family, maybe he's an illegal immigrant, and he has no, nobody here in the United States, there's no votes. But they've done a study, each inmate equates to four votes. Well, with two million people incarcerated, that's eight million votes. The president won an election by five million votes. So that goes to show you, you never hear anybody talking about, let's be hard on crime anymore. Because I think the pendulum has switched. I think the pendulum is let's start helping people and rehabilitate people instead of just building new prisons. It doesn't work. We're talking about rehabilitation. What are the three most valuable lessons you learned from your time uh, in jail? Oh, good question. Uh, The three most important things I learned, Mm. that time heals everything. You have to forgive yourself. That's number one, because you have to forgive yourself before you can even ask for forgiveness from others. Mm -hmm. Time heals everything. And perseverance. I was a very determined man, and I wouldn't let anything. Now, you got to remember, I was fighting the system through snail mail. There was no computers, and there was no – and we'd have to wait weeks, put out a letter and wait, wait maybe weeks or months before you got a reply. Hold it right and there. Then, you said time heals everything. So do you think you've paid your dues to society? Yeah, uh, I do it every day, but yes. You, you, I think there comes a time where everybody can't live that negative life that, oh, I'm, I'm a nobody right. or I'm, uh, I'm not worth anything. Absolutely. And I don't think it's just has to do with all the good deeds I do now. I think it has to do with, again, forgiving yourself, and then with time, mm. you realize you could keep helping people and keeping them out of jail. Can I ever totally say to a person that I robbed, you should forgive me? No, but I do know people have forgiven me because I've heard from them. Right. And they said, hey, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, you know, and I understand that. I think the insurance companies, you know, with their money probably didn't like me. The most. <laughs> um, what if your victim said that they would like you to pay them back for every dollar you took well, rather you than know, you have heard- time in jail? I've never well, I've never heard that, uh, Vip. I've never heard. You've never been on the Vip Jaswell report either, Larry. Yeah, very good, very good. <laughs> and I, and I, and I tell you what, I like your report, Vip. You you ask great questions. Uh, that one question there are the three things I never had that on any show I was on. But uh, what I think, Vip, that uh, the people understand that you know I, who I was. But you know what I try to show to people, Vip, is people do change. Mm. No matter how old you are, Vip, you're not the same man you were 10 years earlier. Correct. And 10 years before that. Correct. And, and everybody. And I think what I've learned in life, at 20 years old, we all thought we knew it all. When we hit 30, we look back and say, well, I didn't know anything. Well, when you hit 40, 
you look back and say, I was still stupid at 30. Mm. Well, I'm 53 years old now, Vip. And when I was 50, I said, man, I thought I knew it all. And you know I don't. I'm learning every day. And I'm changing and I'm evolving. My views on mankind, my views on society, my views on on right and wrong are all you know, molded by my life experiences. And, and I, I can see that. I, I can see that. You know, I can see you've evolved because now you're a cop. Um, but is there <laughs> I something... Am honor, I am an honorary police you're an honor, officer. But you're still a police officer. Um, is there something, like your critics might say, is there something a little twisted about this whole thing? Because it's like a rapist becoming a gynecologist. Well, I, I think there's a little different there. Okay. Uh, how how, how do you become the honorary cop? Because I think that's absolutely amazing. It shows what a great country America is, uh, that your past is not you because you don't live there anymore. Well, let me tell you how it happened. Mm. Uh, what I do is help kids every day and help young people. And my, my program is actually in the court systems in Florida where people get sentenced to them to help them. You also made a DVD on this, right? The Reality Check Program? Yes, the Reality Check Program DVD is actually used by court systems and families all over the country. Why did you choose uh, this about the teens? Well, out of everything that you could have done, what, what, made it, what made you choose helping young adults? Well, there's, there's a couple of things, and I'll tell them. The first one, while I was in prison, I saw so many young people. And, Vip, to you and I, a 20-year-old is still a teen. But I used to see young people come to prison, mm. and, and, boy, their life was changed. But when I get out, it's a great story. When I got out of prison, Vip, I'm, home, I'm not home long, and a friend comes up to me and says, Hey, Larry, I need a favor. I said, You know, what the F? You want me to break somebody's legs? <laughs> And he says, no, 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 Larry, I caught my son smoking weed, right. and he told me, F you, Dad, where have you ever been? You know, the guy started thinking, he goes, i got to talk to Larry, and, you know, maybe Larry could talk to this kid, because he really never been anywhere. Mm. I mean, he was a good, he was a golf professional, and he, he's never he made the, the bad, bad choice. He made choices, drinking, right. a little partying and whatnot, but he wanted to show his son something different. He asked me if i talked to his son. I did, and... Uh, Anyway, I, I went up to the kid, and I'm not the littlest guy in the room, uh, Vip, so I looked at the kid, and the kid was a big kid, but I come in, and I used cup, two curse words the whole time. I said, you asked your father where the F he's been. I'm going to show you where the F I just came from. Mm -hmm. That's it. I sat down, I started showing pictures, and I'm a very blessed man, Vip, because I, you can't even take the pictures I have that I have now. You can't even take them. And I think you saw them in my video. You can't take those pictures anymore uh, with group pictures and stuff of that nature. So I took this stuff and I started talking to this young man about the death and the people I've, I've been with and the hurt I've caused people and how what I've lost from my wife and my kids. My daughter was 15 months old when I went to prison. I got out. She was 13. My have son they, was have, six. Have your children forgiven you? Yes, um, I have a very good relationship with both of my kids, right. uh, and thank God I do, because, you know, I'm very close with them. They realize that I am a different man as well, mm -hmm. and I've learned a lot of patience as well with young people, and they like that, and they do come to me for advice, and they come to me for wisdom, and it, it's very rewarding. Now, where, so, can the, where can the listeners get this DVD, the Reality Check Program? You, any listener can go on Lawton911.com or realitycheckprogram.com or just Google my name, Larry Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N, and you'll they'll be able to uh, 
get right online. You'll you'll see all the stuff I've been on and the Reality Check Program DVD or realitycheckprogram.com will show you some do stuff. Do you think do you think one can totally be reformed once one gets out of prison? Absolutely. That is what I believe in, in to the utmost, but I think it's a process. I think it, it's a multiple front process, which I'm working on right now, uh, to lower recidivism, which is a rate of a person going back to prison. But yes, I think everybody changes, and that's where I went with you guys earlier, with you, Vip, in your report, that we're all a different person than we were a decade ago. And I, I think everybody changes. Do I think there's mental illness out there? Do I think there are people with, you know, it kind of like sexual deviant, and I mean with children and stuff, kind of has this, there's a, there's a twinge in me that really has me thinking, can they really change? Well, here's where I, I was don't. going with this. In your book, you wrote that you, when you got out of prison, um, you sat in the bus, um, and I think you went to a sandwich shop on your way out, uh, and the lady asked you what you want, and you've never been used to making a choice for the last 12 years, and you panicked. So well, where I'm coming know, from is um, other people who've left jail after a certain period of time um, suddenly find there is more safety in jail. Uh, it's more like home because they've spent so much time there that they actually want to go back, and that makes them commit crimes to get back. Well, no, Vip, I'll, I'll disagree on that. Nobody ever gets out of jail hmm. saying, I'm coming back. Everybody says, I'll never be back, or they'll say, I'd rather kill a cop than go back to prison. And that's sad because I'm trying to stop that. Now, they, they don't want to go back because they know how bad it is. When, you know, Vip, the littlest things in the world mean so much to you when you get out of prison. And I'm going to talk about like a little thing like taking a shower without shower shoes with your bare feet hmm. or picking up a remote control and touching a TV. I remember when I first got out of prison, Vip, and I've only been out seven years. I actually used to find my remote control in my car, in my car, because I kept it with me. I wouldn't let it go. And, you know, it's funny because what happens in prison is the average person on the street today, you, me, everybody, Vip, will make 1,500 choices a day. What you're going to wear, how you're going to get to work, what you're going to eat, uh, what tie, everything. You can go on and on. The average inmate makes 100 choices. Now, when you take that VIP and you take that man and put him on the streets to make choices, it's called sensory overload. Mm. That's what it's called. And we, we are not preparing these people to get out of prison. Like, I wasn't prepared. I'm working with a young man, or young man. He's my a little older than me. He's actually did 25 straight years, and I know him very well. And he just wrote me today. You know, he called because he's got a flip phone from the halfway house. He says, you know, I was crying. And I couldn't figure out why. And he's so overwhelmed. He, he, it's still a shock, and he's been out a week almost. Well, he's been out uh, since last, I, I got him last Thursday. So he's kind of still in shock. And the system doesn't do anything to prepare that man. Now, people say, well, do we care? We should care. Because if you could keep that man on a straight and narrow, you're going to do three things. That you're going to lower the cost of incarceration because he's not going back and going to save money. Right. You're doing the right thing by keeping families together. Mm -hmm. you're, you're keeping act and less victims because if he commits a crime, you have another victim. And here's one everybody forgets that the lieutenant governor of Florida told me. He said, Larry, 
also what your program does is actually put more taxpayers on the roll. Let's face it, Vip, if we keep him out and he's working, he's paying taxes. Mm. He's not only paying taxes, he's, uh, he's using the stores. He's using the, the, the gasoline pumps. He's using the of clothes place he buys clothes at. So it's a part of economy. So we're actually, nobody ever talks about that. They go, oh, you know, if we reduce recidivism the, and the prison costs this. Well, what about the up, uptick of the person now as a productive member of society, paying taxes, using the economy, using buying cars, buying uh, presents, buying everything that goes along with being a human being. So now you have another man helping support other men instead of I just- guess, you know what, in, in society, you know, um, regular human beings want to help human beings that are being deprived uh, without a sort of a, a criminal background or a criminal intent. Uh, I, I guess inmates are the last people they're going to worry about. Well, you're right, but it, here's the the bad part of that. Mm. The criminal who you do let ha- that happen to is more dangerous than the man who's never did it. You know he's capable of doing something. So why wouldn't you put a little bit more effort? It's like having a dog you know will never bite anybody. So you let him run around. If you knew a dog bites someone, what do you do? You put him on a leash. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you do whatever it takes to keep that inmate out of prison so he doesn't hurt anybody? Right. And it helps everybody, you know. When and I you only took gave all you of this, you took all of this, and you wrote a book, Gangster Redemption. Did you write it in jail, or you wrote it after you came out? No, actually, the book just came out a couple of years ago. Mm. It was done with an uh, eight-time New York Times bestselling author, Peter Goldenbach. It took us two years to write that book. Well, well, the what, what thing- made you write it? Where did you get the inspiration or that aha moment that I'm going to write a book? Of course, everyone writes a book these days. But what was your reason? No, my reason was a little bit different. Actually, people, I, I developed the reality check program first, right. uh, started becoming more and more successful. And everybody I met kept saying, Larry, you have to write a book. Your story is so different. It's so interesting. It, it's, one of, it's an amazing success story as well as it was a gangster book and a, and a prison book. And you help, and, but my thought when I did the book, uh, Vip, was I'm not going to hold anything back. And it took a while, and, and the writer helped me get a lot out. Was that part honest. of your redemption and your inner conscience that I need to write everything and tell everybody every, everything about me? Uh, well, I think my own redemption is doing what I do with the Reality Check program. I think opening the eyes of people mm-hmm. uh, is what the book was more about. And to show people, Vip, that no matter how bad your son or daughter is or your relative or your or whoever it is, friend, they can change. And that's the real ISIS of the book. The book is is very important because it's not only it just show, I was a very bad guy, Vip. I'm the first to admit that, and I'm not proud of that. But it does show people do change. I, I read your book, and I find important. it. I, I I did find it. It's it's uh, there's so much irony in there because from bad to doing good, uh, it, it's inspiring. Now you're telling me that it's you're, you're looking at making a movie. Actually, I was just talking to directors, and, mm-hmm. and we just put together a treatment, and a script is being made from the book. And yes, we're going to be uh, the book will be Gangster Redemption, the movie. And, and who would you like to play the lead role if you had an unlimited budget in, in today's Hollywood stars? You know, I get asked that question all the time. Uh, we're talking. We got a young actor named Bill Goldman who's pretty good, and he actually did a test test screen. What about the so Rock? Uh, yeah, you know, that's he's got the tattoos. Them. He looks like you. He just needs to stop working out. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vip, that hurt. That hurt. That one hurt. You know, I thought I was doing good. You're doing brilliant, my friend. I'm just like a I'm just like a little radio smurf that likes to tease you, you know? I Think- can't get through here to get you, Vip. <laughs> when am I coming in studio? <laughs> You're going to have to scout the building as you normally did. <laughs> oh, I'll find you. <laughs> now, we're coming to the end of the show. Okay. Well, tell the listeners and, and tell the young people listening, what prevents you from going back to crime? Because a large part of your life was that, and the other part of your life was paying for that. Well, great question, and I'll end it like this. Mm. I tell everyone in my program, Vip, every young person, I do my program, and let me give you a little story. I ask one question, I repeat it four times. Right. In my program, I do this one question, what's the most important thing in your life? Four times, I repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Never. Well, when I first started this whole program, in the beginning of the program, I did that, and some of the kids would say, I want to be a rap star. I want a bigger house than my parents. Mm-hmm. I want a great job. Well, I moved that question to the end of the program, Vip. And since I did it at the end of the program, not once, not once in five years has anybody said other than my mom, my sister, my kids, if they have kids, my grandparents, uh, God, nobody ever says anything material. And I end my program by saying this. If you're willing to lose the most important thing in your life, and they wrote it down, not Mm -hmm. me. I tell them, you wrote it down, not me. If you're willing to lose the most important thing in your life, then go do what you're doing. Get in a car with a kid with a gun. Get in a car with kids with drugs. Start doing that little crime because you will lose. Because, you know, Vip, it breaks my heart. I lost the most important things in my life, my kids, my wife, everything else, the death that happened when I was in a way with my grandmother and others. And, you know, Vip, I say it to this day, I will sleep under a bridge on 95 before I do another crime because I will never lose the most important things in my life. And they aren't my TV and my my computer and stuff or fame. The most important things in my life is my kids. The most important things in my life is uh, my girlfriend. The most important things in life are the things that uh, are not material. They're things that you could lose forever, and you will lose them. And you the most will Im- lose them. And the most important thing in your life is freedom, right? Oh, you know, freedom is so... People take it for granted because they never lost it. Right. And I tell a person, you want to really understand freedom, go in your bathroom and stay there for two weeks and never leave, and I'll feed you. I'll open the door once a day and put food in there. Can you do it? And they can't. You will mm-hmm. go crazy. And I did that for three years, 11 straight months in the hole. But uh, So to get the book... I really uh, implore people to get the book Gangster Redemption because it, 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 it really can open people's eyes and save lives as well as the DVD. And how can people get in touch with you? They can, You know, Vip, I hear from people all the time, mm. and they can just get hold of me by going to that website, Lawton911.com, or realitycheckprogram.com is where you get the DVD and book, or even Google Larry Lawton and you'll find me. Uh, you did, Vip. I guess the... the, the the report did. <laughs> I did, it did, they did. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Larry. You know, Vip, thank you very much. It's been a real uh, entertaining interview, and, and you're really a very good interview. Thank, thank you, you sir. for having me. Stay strong, be good, and always be just that little bit naughty. It always works for me.
We will. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswell Report. A special shout out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. Please do visit foxnewsradio.com for my complete library of shows that cover a variety of topics which impact our lives. You'll be spoiled for choice at what I have to offer. Think of it as a candy shop for your ears. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives. With the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead. 